Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Dad who worked two jobs, a mom who worked third shift, a house on my grandpa's land. You're listening to Why I Am Who I Am, written and performed by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Luke Laird. The Grammy-winning ACM and BMI Country Songwriter of the Year with 24 number one singles will join us in a few moments to talk about some of the hits he's written for other artists as well as his highly personal debut solo album, Music Row. Part one. So, Scott, one of the things we've been doing around our house is we've been playing a lot of music on our little Bluetooth speaker, and some of it's because we're we're home a lot and, you know, 2020. And I'm, I'm trying to educate the kids right. on, you know, some of the finer points of the music their dad has grown up on. And so we've been listening to a bunch of stuff and this song comes on the other day. It's by one of my favorite artists, but the song itself is not one of my favorites. And all I'm going to do is I'm just kind of, kind of hum the intro goes dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Old time rock and roll. That's right? it. Old time rock and roll. I've never cared for that song, but I, I want to go on record as saying Bob Seger is one of my absolute favorite artists out there anywhere love his voice love his writing would love to have bob on the show so if you hear this bob don't hold this against <laughs> me but i don't like old time rock and roll yeah no i i actually agree with you i and i think this is a bit of a phenomenon with some artists i think bob seeger you know a while back we did uh uh, an episode where we kind of did our response to Rolling Stone. They put out a list called the 100 greatest songwriters of all time. And we did a list called the 100 other greatest songwriters of all time. Yeah. And um, our uh, number one was Little Richard and Bumps Blackwell for all the, you know, great Little Richard records there. And I believe our number two, if I remember right, was Bob Seger. Uh, and we, you and I made that list together and agreed on all 100, you know, which took a while to come to consensus. Yeah. And, uh, so you and I are well-documented Bob Seger fans. Um, it's kind of a bummer when the song that a person is known for the best, um, is also kind of like, <laughs> like not only is that like an outlier in terms of not being one of the greatest Bob Seger records, it's also the one that like, if there's someone that only knows one Bob Seger record, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And what's even weirder is he didn't even write that song. I mean, he's a great songwriter and wrote most of his stuff. That was a cover song. Uh, and so I feel like if, if there's anyone out there that's like, ah, I'm not a big Bob Seger fan. It's like, well, maybe you don't really know Bob Seger. Yeah, it is true that there are times when an artist can be one of your favorite artists, but the song that, that the world associates them with is not your favorite or even close to it. I mean, do you have any of like that? Yeah, I mean, 
uh, oddly, I would probably say that like Bob Seger's old time rock and roll is is one of the uh, would be one of my go tos as an example of that to to pick an artist who or, or even pick a song that's probably not as well known as old time rock and roll, but still known in certain circles. I would say that uh, Steve Earle's Copperhead Road, um, yeah. a lot of for a lot of people, Copperhead Road is probably the song that they most know Steve Earle for. And being a longtime Steve Earle fan, I mean, it's it's fine. Uh, but you know, I'm just kind of like, eh, I'm not like, I wouldn't choose to listen to it, right. but I still think that Steve Earle is one of the greatest songwriters around. I would, if somebody was like, Hey, what's, you know, what makes Steve Earle a great songwriter? I would make them a playlist that had, you know, 50 songs on it before Copperhead road, right. but that's still the one that he kind of, for whatever reason is, is probably the most known for. Um, and I think it's like more frustrating when it's, when it's almost perceived by the general public as someone who's kind of a one hit wonder. And you're like, oh, but that hits not even yeah, representative, right. you know, of who this person is and what their talent's all about. Yeah. You know, and, and there is something different between a song that you generally just don't like and one that you've heard too much and that you've gotten sick of. Right. Um, because you take U2 and the song One, for instance. Right. I actually think One is a great song. And if somebody wanted to use that as a entry point into U2's catalog, I'd say that's, that's a great starting point. Yeah. It's a great song. But now if it gets played in this show, I'm going to the bathroom. Right. Um, I, I call that the Jimi Hendrix effect. Like, <laughs> yes, it's amazing and I never need to hear it again. Yeah. Yeah. And and radio has done that to us and, and going to too many shows has probably done that to us. But it, there is something nice about it when the band's biggest hit is not your favorite song because you can then go get a beer go to the bathroom at the show. Remember shows. I do. They I will be back those. one day. Indeed. I think this probably also has to do with the fact that we're children of the nineties. So we're just naturally oppositionalists, like, you know, no matter what. So if <laughs> right. it's like, Oh, that's their most popular song. It sucks. I mean, you know, yeah. that, there's a little of that, lingering of that in us. I'm sure, you know, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. Now that we have the perspective of, of history and time. I mean, if you look back for the last, I don't know, back to the 1950s, even it's, it's arguable that maybe the nineties was like the greatest decade of the last hundred years. Um, just speaking in terms of like, you know, sort of before the terrorism thing was a big threat. The economy was great at the time. Sort of like pop culture was great. Like kind of looking back now, I go, oh, the nineties was kind of awesome. But at the time we were the most cynical, we're cranky, negative, cranky people in the world. Totally. We, were, we were living in the golden era. We didn't even know it. Yeah. And I, and I think every era probably does that. And that's, that's probably why you get songs in the seventies that are about the fifties. Yeah. Um, and there's something that definitely didn't translate that, that is common among seventies artists that we love. I'm talking about the stones. I'm talking about Elton John. I'm talking about Bruce Springsteen and, and the thing is, is these guys freaking love saxophones oh. because they're growing up like to them when they're growing up, like rock and roll is, you know, fifties, like it's yakety yak, you know? Yeah, so yeah. like, then they have these rock bands like, well, what's more rock and roll than like just ripping into a sax solo. <laughs> And oh, Billy, collar up. Billy Joel, like those guys, they all have a huge blind spot. I think rocking out with saxes worked in the 50s. I got nothing against saxophones. I love soul music. I love jazz. But I think that the, the saxophones place in rock music ended uh, by the time the Beatles arrived. And and to to try to put the like, you know, 
Now the stones like pulled it off a little bit with brown sugar. That's kind of cool. Like every now and again, you know, it kind of works, but for the most part, it's like, ah, let's just, let's just know with the, with the saxophone and the rock music. I'll say this. I, I can deal with a sax line or even a sax hook, but not a sax solo. Yeah. You know, cause I'm thinking of Baker street. You know, <laughs> right? I think that sax line is actually pretty great. Right. And for some reason, that doesn't strike me as doing that sax thing, even though it totally does that sax <laughs> thing. I mean, 100%. Right. Well, if you want to talk about a guy who does take influences from his past and bring them into the present and use them in a way that sort of shakes things up in the genre, uh, Luke Laird is a great example of a guy who was raised on country music and hip hop and brought some of those pop and hip hop elements into country music in a way that has largely kind of fundamentally changed the way that country music is perceived. And even maybe what is considered country music, the, the umbrella of country music has widened in recent years. Um, and I don't know that you can put like all of that at the feet of one man, but I think Luke Laird uh, and his writing style has done a lot to um, broaden definitions of of what country music uh, can be. Yeah, and and you know it's been wildly popular. You know, Luke's his catalog of songs has been wildly popular, except probably among purists. They're just like, oh, I don't like what this is doing. Right. But can you find anyone who's who's done anything important in music that hasn't upset the purists? <laughs> I mean, right. haven't been the purists been upset at every turn? Weren't they upset at Elvis? And weren't they upset at the Beatles? And weren't right. they upset at Willie Nelson? And and haven't they been just upset every time? It's it's like a different generation of purists every few decades. Right. But they keep doing the same thing. Right. They keep complaining about everything that ends up winning. Right. Right. And, and usually we're right there with them on the front lines of the complaining, but you know, we're from the nineties. We just like a good, a good (laughs) round of complaining. Um, so, you know, who, who's going to pass it up? Um, you and I were talking, uh, actually recently for, for those who maybe haven't listened to the show for very long or, or don't know us. Um, Paul is a successful songwriter. Um, I am a successful uh, author and researcher. And so combined, we bring sort of this historical research perspective to somebody who's very much a successful, active, working songwriter. I think that's kind of what makes this show work is that we bring these perspectives together and have these great conversations. Um, What people might not realize is that I uh, am actually a failed uh, songwriter. So <laughs> I spent years um, going to Nashville, had a publishing deal for a while. I was like, you know, really working it and and trying to get some stuff going, got a couple songs recorded, but ultimately it just kind of fizzled out. Um, and the people that I was writing with in, in those days, this is the early 2000s, were people like uh, Eric Church, um, Brandy Clark, um, people who once I got out of their circle became successful. Um, so I'm kind of like the poison in the well, like you've got to remove it to get to the, to the good thing. Um, but one of the people that I wrote with in those days was Luke Laird and, uh, Luke and I, I think we just wrote together once. I don't even think he'd had any songs cut yet. He was a new guy, um, you know, in, in town and, and, you know, young and, and scrappy and writing songs. And somebody was like, you know, said, Hey, you and Luke ought to get together and, and write a song. So we did. We wrote a song called uh, Demolition Derby. And uh, I went and I I found the little work tape demo that we made of it that day right after we wrote it. And I got to say, not very good. 
<laughs> so uh well so luke has joined the ranks because luke has now had like over two dozen number one hits it's yeah. it's ridiculous so I think we can all just be grateful that we were able to extract uh, whatever poison I bring to the table from Luke's life so that he too, like Brandy and Eric Church, could go forward and, and thrive as a successful songwriter. Well, if you're on a boat full of people, it's very important to find out who the Jonah is <laughs> so that you can fling that Jonah <laughs> off the boat. Right. And then just move on to smooth sailing from that point on. And, yeah. and maybe that's just been your role. You know, you can identify yourself and say, I'm the Jonah in your career. I am the Jonah. You have thrown me overboard. I have been swallowed by the whale that is Songcraft. I was about to say, and, Songcraft is the whale. And, and vomited <laughs> onto the shore of the internet. Perfect. <laughs> Part two. Luke Laird is one of Nashville's most successful songwriters. He has written two dozen number one country hits, earning him six separate CMA Triple Play Awards, each of which recognizes the achievement of pinning three number one country songs within a 12-month period. The two-time Grammy winner has been named both ACM and BMI Country Songwriter of the Year. Highlights of his catalog include Casey Musgrave's Space Cowboy, which earned him a Grammy for Country Song of the Year, Rodney Atkins' Take a Back Road, which was named BMI Country Song of the Year, Little Big Town's Pontoon, which was an ACM nomination for Song of the Year, and Tim McGraw's Diamond Rings and Old Barstools, which was nominated for a Country Song of the Year Grammy. Two of his most revered songs are Kenny Chesney's American Kids and Eric Church's Give Me Back My Hometown, which were both nominated for CMA Song of the Year, ACM Song of the Year, and the Grammy for Country Song of the Year. Laird built his reputation as a country chart topper with the Carrie Underwood hits So Small, Last Name, Temporary Home, Undo It, and Mama's Song before going on to write chart toppers such as A Little Bit Stronger for Sarah Evans, Drink in My Hand and Talladega with Eric Church, One of Those Nights for Tim McGraw, Downtown for Lady Annabellum, I See You and Fast for Luke Bryan, Gunna for Blake Shelton, Head Over Boots for John Party, and T-Shirt for Thomas Rhett. He's written other massive hits for Miranda Lambert, Chris Young, Brad Paisley, Jason Aldean, Darius Rucker, and Frankie Ballard, and has had his songs recorded by George Strait, Zach Brown Band, Dirks Bentley, Marin Morris, Midland, Rascal Flats, Lindsay L., Ashley Monroe, Toby Keith, Cheryl Crow, Amy Grant, Florida Georgia Line, Jessica Simpson, and Cassandra Wilson featuring John Legend. In addition to his success as a songwriter, Laird has produced Thomas Rhett, Brett Eldridge, Jake Owen, Sam Hunt, Ingrid Michelson, and Casey Musgraves, earning Grammy recognition for his work producing her albums Same Trailer, Different Park, and Pageant Material. Luke recently released his first album as an artist, The Deeply Personal Music Row. Luke, welcome to Songcraft. Man, thank you guys for having me. You recently released your first album as an artist, which is called Music Row, and it's it's a really autobiographical record for a guy who usually makes a living writing songs for other artists to sing. You know, there are a lot of questions we could ask you about your life that are actually answered in the lyrics on that album, um, and maybe the most obvious example would be the song Why I Am Who I Am, and it, it, which comes down to the line, the truth is, I'm the product of a whole lot of love. Um, but I, I want to dig deeper into specifically what kind of music you were soaking up in, in that loving environment as a kid that shaped who you would become as a songwriter in later years. 
Sure. Yeah. So, you know, growing up in northwestern rural Pennsylvania, that's it's not really what I would consider a uh, musical hotbed of any sort. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and also I didn't come from a musical family. So, you know, neither of my parents played music or anything, but I always loved it. And um, when I was in kindergarten, I got a boom box and a and Michael Jackson's Thriller on cassette. And mm. that was just, I mean, still one of my favorite all-time all albums. Um, but as far as, like, exposure to music, it was pretty much the radio at that point. Um, and I just loved it. Uh, just always had a had a passion for it. And, for you know, fortunately, my parents recognized that and found a way to get me piano lessons and guitar lessons and saw that I was really interested in it. So I'm, I'm super grateful for them in that, that aspect. Well, the title track on your Music Row album talks about visiting Nashville during a family vacation in 1995, uh, which included a visit to the Bluebird Cafe where uh, you saw a performance by Tony Arata, the songwriter best known for The Dance by Garth Brooks. That night we hit the Bluebird, I saw Tony You know, you say you'd been taking lessons. Had you actually been writing songs of your own before that point, or was that truly kind of the the big bang moment for Luke Laird, the songwriter? Yeah, well, I had been writing songs and ever since I was a little kid, but I don't think I ever really considered that that would be a career path until really that moment at the Bluebird. And I, I saw, I mean, I knew what songwriters were, but of course I wasn't. I didn't follow him a lot, but once I saw that that night with seeing Tony Arata sing that song, and then of course, as as well as a bunch of other songs that I had heard on the radio, I, it just kind of blew my mind. Um, not that I didn't know there weren't songwriters, but I just it really impacted me. I thought, holy cow, this these guys are actually doing this, and this is their job. And from that from that night on, I was like, what what do I have to do to get to that point? Um, hmm. I I was, I mean, I was pretty realistic too. I knew my songs weren't as good as what I was hearing that night, but I also knew that that was the place to go if I wanted to try to get to that point. Right, right. You know, tell us a little bit about eventually moving to Nashville and, and how you got started. Sure, yeah. So after that trip in 95, I, I really wanted to be in Nashville and um, I knew I wanted to kind of pursue this dream of being a songwriter both of my parents um, were encouraging, but they were, you know, also realistic. And I'm sure they thought, wow, he's, he wants to be a songwriter. Okay. But they were both school teachers and they both really wanted me to go to college. And it wasn't that I didn't want to go to college, but I just wanted to be somewhere near Nashville. And my mom found out about the, uh, the music business program down at MTSU and as well as the one at Belmont. But Belmont was was uh, pretty much out of our price range, so hmm. I visited. Um, we took we took a took a trip down here and and did a, a school visit, and I just knew it was close to Nashville, so I was sold. That's the only school that I applied to. Unfortunately, 
you didn't have to be a, a unbelievable student to get into that school. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, and so yeah, so I, I got so I, I get to MTSU, um, do their music business program, but once I finally got a car of my own, which was in my junior year of college, then I could finally start driving up to Nashville, and that's when I really would start just kind of making weekly trips up here and doing like all the open mic nights, which at the time that would have been at like the hall of fame lounge, which sounds super impressive. It's, it was basically the basement of a best Western. And then, <laughs> um, the, the, the broken spoke, which was out on Trinity lane. Um, another fine establishment. The ceilings <laughs> were about six, six and a half feet high and just filled with uh, camel smoke. Um, but, but it was cool because it was, you know, when I would write something new, I'd get to, I, you know, you go try it out and you go play it. And it was kind of motivation during the week. I want to write something new. So I have something to play at these open mic nights. And then also there were other writers there who were a lot further along than I was. And I always thought that was really inspiring. So hmm. yeah, it was, it was kind of a cool time while I was in school down there. Yeah. Well, the, first song of yours to be released by a major artist was Leanne Womack's recording of Painless, which came out in, in 2005. Um, kind of walk us through the the story of landing that first cut. Yeah, so so that, um, there was a writer here in town who was always really encouraging to me, a guy named Bill Luther, and he, he actually got me my first meeting with a publisher, and we wrote some songs, and uh, we had... He said, "Hey, we should we should ask Hillary Lindsay to come in um, one day, and the three of us should write." Which I, of course, knew who Hillary was at the time, but I'd never written with her or anything. And um, we got together that day. We write a song, and it it went pretty fast, actually. And um, Hillary was like, "Well, that was painless," and we're like, "Well, okay, let's write that too." <laughs> <laughs> wow! And so, so we write a song called "Painless," and. It was just a, such a cool moment because then we then we did a demo on it and Bill actually sang the demo. Hillary did some incredible backgrounds on it. All of a sudden, we find out Leanne Womack loves it and she cuts it. And and at that point, I had nothing going on. I was super excited. But a funny thing about that, funny story about that song is, I get a call one day from. Byron Gallimore's mom and Byron was the producer of the record. Right. And um, his mom was doing production coordination for that project. So I get a call from her um, and she's like, Hey, you know, you know, Leanne cut your song and I'd heard it. I was super excited. She goes, uh, Leanne wants you to come in and sing backgrounds on it. So now all I'm thinking is, well, it's not me because I didn't even sing on that demo. Right. <laughs> she doesn't want me singing on it. And so I told her, I go, wow, well, I'm, I'm flattered, but honestly, I think she probably wants either Hillary Lindsay or Bill Luther because I had no part of that the the demo recording. She's like, okay, well, I'll let me let me check on it. So she calls me back about thirty minutes later, and she's like, no, Leanne said she wanted you to sing on it. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> Leanne had actually had a few of my other demos um, of songs that she never recorded, but she liked and was listening to, and for whatever reason. Uh, she liked how my voice sounded. So 
I get to go out there and sing the background on this. And I was super nervous driving it. I had no idea what key the song was going to be in. I'm, I'm practicing along to the demo. I'm like, I don't even know if this is going to be the same key. I got, you know, it's a guy singing it. And, right. uh, but I got out there. Fortunately, it was the one key I could kind of come up with this one simple part. <laughs> I'm not like an incredible background singer. But fortunately, what I did worked. And it wasn't a lot, but it stayed on the record. And so it was just... <laughs> The, the whole deal was kind of cool. It was my first cut. I got to sing with Leon Womack. And wow. wow. Believe, nobody's asked me since to sing backgrounds on their <laughs> records, but, you know, somehow that one made it through. <laughs> you made it look so painless Didn't break an eye when you ran me over And maybe you were waiting to cry Cause baby, when you said made it look so painless. Well, you know, the, the first cut is, is one thing, it's, and it's an amazing experience, but getting your first charting single, I mean, that's, that's a whole other thing. That's, that's a, a really big deal, and it's, it's an even bigger deal when your first charting single hits number one on the country chart for three weeks. That's what happened with your song, So Small, which you wrote with Hillary Lindsay and Carrie Underwood. When you figure out love is all that matters after all, it sure makes everything seem so small. It's so easy to get lost inside a problem that That's another, you know, thank God for Hillary Lindsay. I, I, Hillary and I had been writing um, for for quite a while at that point, and Carrie Underwood had her um, first album had come out, and of course it was her coming off of American Idol. It sold like seven million records, something crazy. But she decided she was going to do more writing on the next record, and she had a little more say and. Obviously, after you sell seven million records, then you you get that. But I, uh, you know, she had some days booked with Hillary, of course, because I mean, Carrie's recorded more Hillary Lindsay songs than any other writer in Nashville, hmm. and so I was the fortunate one that had happened to be writing a lot with Hillary at that point. And and also at the time, there was a guy named Chris Oglesby who actually signed me to my first pub deal, and he always believed in my songs and. He was tied in with helping Carrie find songs. So I had Hillary Lindsay and Chris Oglesby vouch for me. And they booked a few days with the three of us. And fortunately, Carrie was, um, you know, she was on board with, with trying some new things. Yeah. And uh, it just so happens that, you know, I think we had three days in a row booked. And I, I was pretty nervous, but Hil I'd worked with Hillary before, so... I was used to that and, and Carrie was super sweet. So we just so happened to get, you know, the first three days we wrote two songs that, that ended up being singles, but you know, at the time I'd never had a hit. So, I mean, how the heck do I know what she's going to record? But I remember getting the call from Chris Oglesby and he said, Hey, you're getting the first single off this 
And I mean, Carrie Underwood cut is, it's still big, but you figure back then she was just taken off. And so it was super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after another number one single with Carrie Underwood's recording of Last Name, you had your third number one in 2009 with Blake Shelton and Trace Adkins' Hillbilly Bone. And that's a song you wrote with Craig Wiseman, who's probably one of Nashville's most successful songwriters of all time. Um, And, you know, we've talked about this before on our show, but there's almost this informal apprentice program in Nashville where younger people come to town and they work with veteran writers in a situation where the veterans kind of benefit from fresh perspectives and and new ideas. Mm -hmm. And the young writers benefit by having the opportunity to kind of sit at the feet of the masters and, and, you know, really perfect the craft. Um, Talk a bit about how that model that that is kind of unique to Nashville in a way, how that worked for you in, in your early career. Wow. Um, you know, I it's it, it was pretty cool because um, for me, it's like I'll just say, for instance, someone like Craig Wiseman. Um, when I signed my first publishing deal at BMG, he was a writer there and he was kind of like in his last year there and he was really in the top probably probably the top writer in nashville at that point just as far as amount of cuts and number ones and he's had an unbelievable career but one thing i noticed about him was he nobody worked harder than him is i mean he was in there writing every day and the way i got to write with him the first time was i was just up there by myself and he'd got canceled on and so he said hey do you want to write and one thing i learned from him he's always writing with new writers like Hmm. just all the time a lot of writers from his generation may not be as willing to work with new people you know i think you get in your comfort zone and you hang out with your buddies and stuff but a lot of them have kind of just written themselves out of the business um, right not because it's and it's not because they're not talented but kind of like you were saying that you get that fresh perspective from you know music's always been about what's next and someone like craig you know he brings in his He's always going to have lyrical ideas and stuff like that, but he's also he's he's wanting to learn from new people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I learned a lot from him. I, I try to I'm probably not even as good at it as he was, but always wanting to try new things. Hmm. But then I also also from from the veterans, they they've just done it so much. They know how to um, they know how to craft a song. They know a lot of times what's worth putting time into, like. Early on, I feel like as a writer, especially when you're writing for other artists and for radio and stuff, early on, I feel like I would go down these rabbit holes and even finish songs that if now I wouldn't even probably try to finish because you can, you just know quicker, like this is or isn't going to work. Yeah. Um, You don't always know a hundred percent, oh, this is going to work or not. But I think it's just a matter of doing it over and over and over and what idea, you know, which ideas are really going to cut it. And is this something that's going to stand out? Right. Yeah. You know, you had quite a string of success with Carrie Underwood's 2009 album, Play On, which yielded three chart-topping singles that you wrote, Temporary Home, Mama's Song, and the double platinum selling Undo It. You stole my happy, you made me cry, took the lonely and took me for a ride, and I wanna uh, 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 undo it. You had my heart, now I want it back. I'm starting to see everything you like. 
ways did your work with Carrie really change the game for you as you began to build your career? You know, I, I always felt like, uh, I don't this, this is going to sound weird, but, um, I wasn't the one driving in those sessions, which was totally cool. I was almost just learning, but for whatever reason, we were able to come up with songs that she, she felt like represented her well. And I kind of take pride in that as far as when I work with artists, I'm not trying to like, Oh, put my stamp on it. Like this is how a song should be done, but I'm really trying to, to get the best out of the artist. And hopefully, you know, the songs that I'm a part of, they don't all just sound the same, but, you know, having that success with Carrie for sure just opened so many doors because if you think about it, I mean, like, especially with new artists coming along, they're, they're more willing to, Oh, he's written with, Oh, he's had stuff with, you know, this person or that person, Carrie Underwood. Yeah. I'll, I'll take a chance on him. And, um, so yeah, when you have, you know, a few of those credits to your name, it's, it's for sure, it can for sure make it easier to get in certain rooms. And then, but then it's like starting all over again. You're like, oh gosh, I hope I don't suck. (laughs) You you get in there and you're like, okay, uh, okay, let's see. What can we come up with? Well, you were pretty successful at, uh, not sucking because the (laughs) success, um, kept coming in 2010 and 2011 with huge hits like Sarah Evans, a little bit stronger, which you wrote with Hillary Lindsay and Hillary Scott of Lady Antebellum, uh, as well as Miranda Lambert's baggage claim, which you wrote with Miranda and Natalie Hemby, who's been a guest on our show previously. Um, I I think of country music as often prizing a certain kind of male swagger. Um, But with the exception of Hillbilly Bone, all the early hits we've talked about so far were co-written with women and recorded by women. Um, As a male writer, what do you bring into the room that creates a productive chemistry with female co-writers and kind of getting into that female perspective? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, it's funny because I, you know, could have never planned it that way. But if I think about, think back over my career, I mean, a lot of my favorite um, and most productive co-writers have, have been women. And I don't know why that is. I, you know, maybe it's something to do with, I'm a middle child and grew up with two sisters, so I know how to deal with women or something. I don't know. Right. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I just, I have no idea why that is, but. I also, I I feel like, especially in country music, a lot of the, a lot of the most compelling music coming out of Nashville are are female artists. So I want to be a part of that. Um, And there's just so many talented women in this town. Um, But, but I don't, you know, I didn't say, oh, I have to write with this, this many women this week or next week. It just so happened that that's what I was getting all my best stuff with. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you earned your first major award as a country songwriter when BMI named Rodney Atkins' 2011 number one single, Take a Back Road, the country song of the year. Sitting in six lane backed up traffic, horns are honking, I've about had it, I'm looking for an exit sign. Gotta get out of here, get it all off my mind, and like a memory from your grandpa's attic, a song comes slipping through the radio static, changing my mood. A little George Strait in 1982, and it makes me wanna take a back road, makes me wanna take the long way home, put a little gravel in my travel, unwind, unravel, all night long. 
some hip hop influences in the lyrical structure of the verses of that song, which is it's a pretty common thing in country music now, but it wasn't something you heard so much, you know, back then. So in in what ways, if any, has hip hop informed your approach to country songwriting? Um, I mean, it's it's informed it a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think growing up being in being in junior high and high school in the 90s, I mean, I loved 90s hip hop as well as 90s country. And what I loved about the hip hop music of that time was that the just the sound of it, the uh, the production, kind of the, the sample based stuff, but also I just felt like the phrasing was super fresh. Uh, country music at the time, it I was more into the lyrics. I could I could relate more. Probably just growing up in rural America. But as far as the sonics of the music, I loved what hip hop was doing, um, and still listen to it a lot. And probably that era, you know, probably just from growing up at that time. That's that's why I I, I like it so much. But but yeah, I I think that also when I was writing, even like to take a back road. You're right. At the time, it didn't feel like it. It wasn't as beat driven um, and even phrasing wise, I would get in a room with some older writers and they'd be like, no, you have to do like the, the pre-chorus, you know, has to match up exactly. And I'm just kind of like trying to write what feels good. Mm. Um, obviously, like it, it was still very commercially structured. I mean, I wasn't, you know, writing a folk song or something like that. But but yeah, I love I love phrasing to kind of I would use phrasing to kind of keep a song interesting and um I still do that, and obviously it's it's done a ton now, almost so much that where if you do write something more traditional right now, I feel like it'll stand out more. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, well, as we move into 2011, 2012, we see plenty more number one hits, including Drink in My Hand for Eric Church, You for Chris Young, and Somebody's Heartbreak for Hunter Hayes. Um, those are all songs you wrote with the artist, but you were also mm-hmm. topping the charts at the time with songs like Pontoon for Little Big Town um, that were written with other behind-the-scenes writers. Um, and I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts in general on the difference between writing with an artist versus coming up with something that might be pitched to any artist. There's so many of the my favorite people to write with now are artists that are actually really good songwriters. Like, you know, an Eric Church for instance, or Casey Musgraves, both of them would be, if they weren't, you know, out being superstars, they would for sure be songwriters here in Nashville writing for other people. So hmm. fortunately, I've, I've I've been fortunate enough to get hooked up with some artists who are actually really good because you hear these horror stories like, oh, so that, that person can't write, their record label just made them do it. But I'll say for the most part, I've been, the artists I've worked with are actually good songwriters. And you are at an advantage um, as far as you know immediately, are we writing something that this artist would say? Um, a lot of times when I work with an artist, it's their ideas that we're writing. I mean, I always try to come prepared with ideas, but you're kind of already ahead of it by knowing what they're what they're willing to say and what they want to say. Right. When you're writing songs to just pitch, you know, there's a freedom in that too, because if you get with, you know, some of your buddies who are also songwriters, um, there's something nice about, look, we're, we're literally just trying to write the best idea today. 
I'm not someone who's good at like, hey, let's write a song for so-and-so today. I, I wish I was better at that, but I'm more like, let's just write a great song and then find out where it could fit. And I think Pontoon's a good example of that. That song was, um, I mean, it is kind of hilarious, but we had such a blast writing it. When we were done, I mean, I, I think all of us were like, I have no idea who to pitch this song to, but we know we really <laughs> like it. And right. uh, so... I, I still really enjoy, I'm not like one of those people who only write with artists. Um, I, I love, there's so many great writers in this town. I always um, feel like if you get a great song, even if it doesn't happen that year, um, if you have a great song, you can always have it to pitch and you just never know where a song could land. Yeah. In 2013, Tim McGraw spent three weeks at number one with one of those nights, which you wrote with Rodney Clawson and Chris Tompkins. She picks a song, you turn it up to 11. You say, do you want it? And she says, hell yeah. So you hit the party, all your buddies are jealous. Someday you'll be looking back on your life at the memories. This is going to be one of those nights point you'd had a lot of hits already but primarily with artists that were typically closer to being your generational peers um this was your right. first major hit by an artist who was already a veteran superstar when you first began your career uh, you know it's an artist that if you went if you went back in time say to 1995 luke at the bluebird cafe yeah. you would have known even then that that guy was a star is there something about an experience like that that feels different uh, for sure. I mean, um, getting a song recorded by someone like Tim, McGraw, it, it's exactly like you said. I, I thought about myself being in high school, and if you would have told me back then, or like when I was in ninth grade, I went and saw Tim McGraw open for Blackhawk in Little Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but if you would have told me, oh, one day he's going to re record some of your songs, I would have been like, what? That's crazy. And uh, it de it definitely feels that way. You're like, wow, that guy actually thinks that something I wrote is good enough to record um, and put a, put on an album. So it is different than, like, say, someone who you came into the business with at the same time, which yeah. is still awesome, but but it's very, very cool when, you know, I guess you could say some of your heroes actually yeah. listen to your song. You know, they're, just the fact they're listening to them is, is hard to believe. Right, right. Uh, well, the hot streak continued in 2013 with the number one hits Downtown by Lady Antebellum and Beat This Summer by Brad Paisley, um, as well as the top 10 hits 1994 by Jason Aldean, Parking Lot Party by Lee Bryce and Radio by Darius Rucker. Um, you know, being a successful Nashville songwriter typically means treating it like a regular job, putting in the hours, you know, day in and day out. Uh, and I'm reminded of the lyric of your song, Music Row, which says, uh, the truth is most of the music don't see the light of day, and a lot of the best songs never find their way to the radio. Um, it, it, you know, in other words, the way I interpret that is it, it's a numbers game. You know, not, not every song is going to, to get cut, you know, by far. And even the ones that do get cut, not every single one is going to have some crazy personal or, or, or inspirational story behind it. You know, sometimes it's just, Hey, that was a good day's work. Um, yeah. But with, you know, with acknowledging that, um, do any of the songs from that period kind of stand out in your mind as being particularly special or, or particular favorites of yours personally? Yeah. I think that, um, beat this summer, uh, I always really liked that. I, I'd never had the opportunity to work with Brad Paisley before that. And 
his best friend and probably longest co-writer had been um, Chris Dubois. And, you know, again, that was kind of when I was getting hot as a writer. So Chris called me one day and was like, hey, Brad would was wondering if you could come out um, and write out at his house with us. And also the, another thing that was kind of going on at the time in Nashville, which this sounds funny outside of Nashville, but not a lot of people were writing to tracks. Right. Um, and, and actually when I started, I, I wasn't either. It was a few years after that. Um, but at that, at that point, when I started really getting a bunch of cuts was when I started making these tracks. And hmm. I think, I don't know if it was just I was getting opportunities because it was kind of for a lot of writers in Nashville, it was kind of a new thing to to write to to music um, as far as just sitting there with a the guitar and coming up with something and then the production kind of being an afterthought. But right. I was having a lot of fun making these little demos that kind of sounded unique. Uh, I think just because I wasn't going in with a full band and I was coming up with a, a bunch of musical hooks. So what I did in that particular instance with Brad Paisley I had this one track started where I had sampled a steel guitar and I kind of chopped it up in the sampler and made like a little hook out of it. And I played that for Brad and he'd never, I don't think he'd really worked that way before. Uh, so he got excited about that and they had this idea called beat this summer. And, and I think that's how, you know, it was just a cool moment for me because of course I've, I'd known about all of Brad Paisley's work, but that was kind of the one and only thing we ever did together, but it was, it was a really cool moment. And it was kind of also a moment where I think a lot of artists started looking to work with quote unquote track people, you know, and, uh -huh. and pop, they'd say the, the producer or whatever, but. Was that's the year that you really did emerge as not just a songwriter but a producer, you know, for artists like Brett Eldridge and Thomas Rhett, including his number one single, Give Me Some of That, and as well as for Casey Musgraves, with whom you and previous songcraft guest Shane McAnally that's that's a plug for us there as we do that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but a previous guest, Shane, you know, you, you guys co produced her same trailer, different park album, and that won a Grammy for best country album. The, the process of you know, sampling and chopping those things up, you know, really kind of opened up some doors for you, just even creatively, not not just doors that were opening in your career. But is that fair to say that that sitting in the producer's chair opened up new doors for you as a writer? Absolutely. Um, I kind of just fell into a lot. You know, the way I started producing was, so in Nashville, for those of you that don't know, like the typical at least when I'd came come into the business, it was you write your song, you do a work tape, an actual work tape at the time. It was just recorded on a cassette, a guitar vocal. And then you go in a studio, hire a band, because, you know, they have just incredible musicians here in Nashville. And they kind of put their interpretation on 
and, and it's typically kind of what does radio sound like right now. And so you have a, a great recording of this song that you can pitch to artists and artists can kind of envision themselves singing the song. For me, I did that a bunch. And the problem was I'd get these demos back and it, it just wasn't connecting with me emotionally. And it, it wasn't the musician's fault. The problem was I, I wasn't a great community communicator with the musicians as far as how to get what I was hearing in my head. So I went ahead in 2005, bought my first laptop and just slowly started learning it like in GarageBand. How can I make these demos somewhat interesting? And a lot of my more quirkier demos that weren't necessarily as, you know, professional sounding started getting attention. And I think it was just because they were kind of I don't know if it's just how bad they were, but they kind of stood out um, <laughs> on a comp CD that an artist listened to. Listened to, and I, I would take the extra time to come up with the actual guitar riffs and different musical hooks. So, yeah. So then, all of a sudden, I start getting opportunities with artists, and then they would leave the the room that day with a with a demo that kind of sounded unique, and, and I think it really helped me get more opportunities because. Like I said, not a lot of people were doing that at the time. Um, it was, but but also I would help with the lyric. So, yeah, with with Casey too, it was just we were just doing these little demos and writing and recording. It was just a very organic. I I had I did not move here to be a producer. I didn't even know what that was. Hmm. Um, and and so when she said, "Hey, would you produce this album, you, me, and Shane?" I actually. <laughs> I actually tried to talk her out of it. I said, why don't you get like, have you talked to Jay Joyce or because I loved what we were writing so much. I just didn't want to mess it up for, and, Mm. um, and selfishly didn't want to ruin it for my songs. But you know, it's a testament to her to what a great artist and producer she is because she knew she was hearing the sound that she wanted. So it just kind of was very organic and, and, and really such a cool moment for me. Did that era kind of change the paradigm completely for you in terms of uh, do you do you ever still do like full blown uh, band demos or or are you basically just a self-contained writing and and demoing guy at this point? No, I still do, because when you when you have to when you do the whole demo on your own, where you're sitting there playing everything, it is time consuming. And what I've noticed if you're the guy who's in charge of getting the track done, you're basically working twice as long because you're sitting in there after you're done and trying to get it to come together. A lot of what I do is kind of like a hybrid. So I'll have like a basic track started. And sometimes what we write that day, um, it's, it's a, there's enough there for it, for it to sell the song. But a lot of times I'll have maybe some programming, some guitar stuff, and then I'll still hire a band take those tracks into the studio and just try to amp them up it but it's a it's a big time saver when you when you have something already started because you get in there with your musicians you already know what your tempos are you you already know what the key is what the what the feel and a lot of times the the guide vocals are already done as well so i kind of have a process now that that works pretty smoothly and and is way less stressful than it was in the early days right well, it's funny, you know, we talk about Luke Laird, the producer, and one of your very earliest production efforts wasn't actually a country song at all, but uh, was She Is by R&B artist Neo, which you wrote with him and which became kind of an unlikely duet with Tim McGraw. Um, tell us a bit about how that came together. 
Sure. That's a, that's another example of the fact that I had had some success with Carrie Underwood. Neo really wanted to work with Carrie and Carrie was a fan of his stuff too. And so she asked me to, to come in on the co-write. So the three of us got together, wrote this song, came out really well. I finished the production, um, actually got their recorded their vocals and they, they both happened to be in New York at the same time. So I flew up there and got everything all finished. Um, and then the song never, it just never came out on either one of their projects. I, I still was proud of the song, but that began a relationship. Neo's manager called me one day and said, Hey, um, Neo wants to know if you want to come down to Miami and work on this new album. And of course I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. And so that was a situation where I came into it and I was pretty much just the track guy because he, he, he likes to, you know, we had written that one song with Carrie and it was a pretty collaborative effort, but he's so used to just getting tracks and then working on the song by himself. So the two of us went into the studio and I had some tracks ready and we did one other song and then we had this, this, uh, the song that turned into, to she is, and, I just did the music. He wrote wrote all the lyrics, recorded the vocals, uh, and that's how that came about. But it was a really, honestly, I'm like, man, I wish I could do this more often because this is really easy <laughs> compared to having to come up with a bunch of li- bunch of lyrics. But I right. say really, not re- not really easy. But you know, I was so used to having to you know write, produce, do do it all, and I, I realized pretty quickly in that world, oh, I can just focus on the music, and he's going to come up with all the ideas. crazy when a guest has so many number one hits that we have to talk about it in terms of years because there isn't enough time to talk about all the songs um and that's certainly true for 2014 when you top the charts with frankie ballard's sunshine and whiskey eric church's talladega and luke bryan's i see you uh it was also the year that you earned nominations for the country song of the year grammy and nominations for the cma and acm song of the year with not one but two titles Give Me Back My Hometown with Eric Church and American Kids for Kenny Chesney, which he wrote with Rodney Clawson and Shane McAnally. What can you tell us about those two songs? So American Kids was a lot of fun to write. I, like you said, I wrote that with Shane and Rodney. We got together and, you know, we just started, we were talking about our our respective hometowns where we grew up and they both grew up in small towns in Texas. And like I said earlier, I grew up in a small town in Northwestern Pennsylvania, which in a lot of ways can seem just like a world away, but there was, we had so many similarities that we, uh, we could, that song was a lot of fun to write. Uh, I, I remember I started, we started that. I just had a, I was playing a bass and I kind of just started playing that, that bass progression in the verse and then put like a little, like a little stomp clap thing in the track. And that's what we wrote to. And, uh, I remember it, it got to the chorus section and we knew we wanted to change it up musically, but 
couldn't quite figure out how to open it up and and Rodney actually started playing that chord progression for the chorus um, and it really opened it up and so we had all these really uh, colorful lines about where we grew up but we didn't have a we didn't have the title of the song and we got all the way to that point we're like okay what what rhymes with kiss and we went through all these things and uh finally it's like what are we trying to say and it's basically american kids and once we had that i felt i really felt good about that a lot of times people say do you know when you've written a hit and i'm like well no i mean at this point all the songs i write i feel like they at least can be pitched and if the right person got it they could be a hit but that was one i was really proud of and and honestly early on i was kind of kind of bummed out because it just wasn't getting it was getting passed on left and right and then finally it was on hold for tim mcgraw for a little bit and then little big town for a little bit and nobody ever pulled the trigger on it but this is where it helps to know famous people which shane McAnally does (laughs) (laughs) i think he's one of them at this point i'm not sure Um, but he he called me up and and he literally was like, Hey, so I was on Kenny's jet, uh, which I've never said those words, but he said, <laughs> I was on Kenny, Kenny's jet. And I was like, Kenny Chesney. He said, yeah. He said, I, um, I put my headphones on him and said, listen to this song. And it was American kids. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't think I'd have the balls to do that. But <laughs> he did, he did it. And, uh, Kenny was like, I want to cut this song. Like, right now and, and he cut it like i want to say within the next two weeks we were jesus sammy blue jean baby born in the usa trailer park truck stop faded little map dots new york to la we were teenage dreaming front seat leaning baby come give me a kiss put me on the cover of the roller stone uptown down home american kids growing up in little And then give me back my hometown, which I at that point had been writing with Eric for a few years. We'd we'd kind of really hit it off, um, just writing songs together. And the way he does his albums, a lot of times, <clears throat> like in particular, he goes out to North Carolina, which is where he grew up, and he has a cabin out there. and And he would invite writers to come out, kind of like one or two writers at a time for a few days at a time, and so. This is a really funny story. I was driving at that point. I had the truck I was driving was like a ten-year-old Nissan Frontier. It had, it was a pretty good truck, but I was starting to have transmission issues, and so I was on I forty headed towards North Carolina, and I just something was really going wrong with the transmission. So I called my wife, and I was like, "Hey, I, you know, I've been talking, and, and this is." I'm not a car person. I don't really, but I always wanted a black Ford F-150 truck. So I call her up and I said, I really, you know, I'm really, I really want to get that truck, I think. And she goes, okay, well, when you get back, we'll, you know, we'll make some calls and go look at some, I go, no, I think I need one now. She's like, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm having issues with this transmission. She's like, wait a minute. Like you're driving to North Carolina and you want a new truck now? (laughs) I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to make it there without it. She's like, oh my gosh, you're crazy. But she's like, hold on, give give me 10 minutes. And she called me back and she said, there's these two dealerships in Knoxville, Tennessee. Go to this one. I think they have what you want. 
And she goes, I sent you the Edmonds report. Don't pay more for it than it says on here. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, she's very, uh, she, she, she kind of takes her time with things. Unlike me, I'm just like impulse. Uh, right. so I pull into this dealership. It's like, it's a Monday. It's like pouring rain. And this guy's like standing out there smoking a cigarette and I get out, I go, hey, I think my wife called. He goes, yeah, I got some, I think. And I looked over and I saw this black F-150. I go, man, that's, I want to get that one. He goes, you want to test drive it? And I said, nah, I don't. Cause what he didn't know is I'm, I'm kind of in a hurry at this point. I don't want to be like, well, I'm going to write with Eric church. I need to hurry up. Um, but then I started thinking, okay, I should at least drive it around the block. Cause that would just be dumb. And so I took a quick test drive and bought it as quick as possible, which there's no quick way to do that. Anybody that's ever <laughs> bought a car. Um, right. so I pull up to Eric's cabin. He's like, man, nice truck. When'd you get it? I was like, ah, oh, today. <laughs> on the way here <laughs> he got, he was like today i was like yeah man we really need to write a single <laughs> so, so there's different ways you can kind of pressure artists into you know trying to write a hit but i said that and it's like it's almost like he didn't even hear me because he said man i have this idea i want to write and it's like a it's about a civil war soldier who comes back from the dead and like starts talking to his wife and all i'm thinking is that that is not a hit yeah, uh, but, but you know what i'm i'm here to serve the artist and so we did we wrote that song and then fortunately the next day he said man i've, I've been wanting to write a song that had like one line in the chorus that you repeat and i'm like i'm thinking now nah, now we're talking and uh <laughs> now we're gonna and, it, and it was <clears throat> now nah, we're getting somewhere and it was giving me back my hometown and and so we write uh -huh. that song and i felt pretty good about it but i mean i didn't know if it would be a single or not. And fortunately for, for me and for the truck payment, it was. These sleepy street lights on every sidewalk, side street. You shed a light on everything that used to be me. Back my hometown. Cause this is my. In 2015, Tim McGraw released the song Diamond Rings and Old Barstools, uh, which earned you yet another Grammy nomination for Country Song of the Year. And you've incorporated a lot of hip-hop or, or non-traditional elements into contemporary country music, but that's one of the more traditional old-school country songs in your catalog. Um, and listening to it kind of reminded me of the song Country Music Will Never Die on your Music Row album. Um, and there's a line in there that says, thank God for Harlan Howard, thank God for Bob McDill, uh, you know, name-checking a couple of legendary Nashville songwriters from the past, uh, one of which, McDill, has been a guest uh, on our show. Amazing, amazing writer. Um, but the, the, the same song says of the country genre, It'll go through some changes that don't change the way it makes you feel when it hits you in the heart and meets you right there where you are. Damn right, country music will never die. Yeah, it'll go through some changes that don't change the way it makes you feel when it hits you in the heart and meets you right there where you are. Thank God. Harlan Howard Thank 
gun for Bob McDill. For the ones who knew the way to come, and man was feeling, put it all in a song. So we had a way of dealing with life. Damn right, country music will never die. And talk a bit about that push and pull of the past and present, especially when you work in a genre that really honors tradition, um, but where you also want to break new ground and, and push ahead into the future. Yeah. So for me, um, I've always loved traditional country music and, but I'm also someone who, yeah, this is my job and and I want to write stuff that, that hasn't, that you feel like you haven't heard it before. So I'm always trying to work that balance. I think, I think too, once I've, if I've had like a couple of weeks where it's like, I'm writing really current sounding stuff. I just, I always feel this need to write something really traditional. Um, and it's in, like I said before, I think sometimes when you're, when you are writing maybe kind of the newer sounding type of songs, there's, there's almost a freshness to the, to the tr- more traditional sounding um, type country music. And I, I really, I'm always going to want to write a traditional country song, but I'm also, also going to want to find ways to, to push the boundaries. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do when I'm working with new artists is kind of expose them and tell, ex- expose them to music from the past and say, Oh, I think you'd like this. Uh, um, you know, old song by whoever. Um, that's a lot of fun for me because I, I do think it's important to kind of remember where this stuff came from. And I'm mm. I'm such a like nostalgic person. I still love the whole idea of coming into Music Row and writing songs and, and thinking like, man, this is back in the day where Bobby Braddock would, would come and, and Harlan Howard and these guys. And really, even if it's even if the uh, the way we get these songs finished can be a little different, it's still all about trying to come up with a great idea and and come and come up with some lyrics out of thin air. And I just love that. I mean, I love I love being part of that tradition. So yeah, yeah, I'm always gonna wanna wanna kind of not give a nod to the to the uh, more traditional sounding stuff as well as I want to be part of whatever's next next too. I think probably the most obvious example of that is a single of yours that came out this year, um, Hard to Forget by Sam Hunt. And, you know, you've got uh, a song that heavily samples uh, Webb Pierce's There Stands the Glass. And uh, I'm a a huge traditional country music fan. I I never thought I'd say Webb Pierce and sampling in the same uh, sentence before. I mean, that's that's like completely uh, that's a whole whole new animal. But you kind of you kind of see that in there. I mean, that's like the true tradition, and yet it's being used in a, in a very contemporary way. There stands the glass That will ease all my pain That will settle my brain It's my first one to take There stands the glass That will ease all my I saw your sister at work, I saw your mama at church, I'm 
pretty sure I saw your car at the mall. I see your face in the clouds. I smell your perfume and cry. The way that song started was I was just having breakfast one morning and had my headphones on and uh was was listening to this old uh it's uh this playlist on apple music called honky tonk essentials and that song came on and and i've of course i've known that song for a lot of years and once i did a little research i didn't realize how many other people had recorded that song too there stands the glass but I, I heard it and I was like, this could be crazy, but what if I made a beat to that? And I wasn't thinking, and then, I, and then I'll play it for Sam Hunt and whatever, but I'll do that sometimes. I'm just like, let's just make a track. And so I heard that song and as I was walking in the parking lot to my truck, I just pulled my phone out and, and kind of recorded the feel. So I was like, there stands the... And and then when I got to the studio, I made that track. And then, really, I didn't think much about it again. I wasn't like, oh, this is going to be whatever. But then I get together with Sam uh, and Ashley Gorley, and we were working on a song. And then Sam was like, I mean, do you have any other tracks? And I turned around, and it happened to be like on in my playlist. And I go, and and I thought about this all at once. I was like, actually this is an artist who I, who could probably turn this into something that would maybe get heard. And so I played him that track and he just, he loved it. Yeah. So we end up, we end up writing a song to it and, uh, and it was pretty cool. It was called one whiskey away and it was this very traditional lyric and country song. Um, but then he calls me the next day. He goes, man, I was thinking I wrote this other song. He, he said, I wrote this other song with Josh Osborne and Shane McAnally called, uh, she's playing hard to forget. And I think a lot of this lyric would work better with this track. I was like, okay. So we we get back together and kind of rework that other lyric to fit with this track. And at first I was thinking, man, that what we got was really good. I'm not sure why he would want to change it. But once we finished it, I thought, oh, man, he was right. And uh, one of the cool things to me about that song is I think the sample makes it really unique and make catches people's attention but if you take take all the production away and just sit there and play it it just sounds like a traditional country song yeah um, hard to forget and yeah it was it was really cool and, and i always think of webb pierce you know the first time i came to nashville and go to the hall of fame and you see that cadillac he had right. he, he was just kind of such a flashy guy i thought you know what because when we did it, I'm like, I know there's going to be pe- people that are like, oh, you're ruining traditional country music. But I was like, I bet Webb Pierce would be cool with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that raises an interesting question. Um, and, you know, to get there, we're just going to skip over even more number one singles like Gunna by Blake Shelton, Head Over Boots with with John Party. Um and heading right to uh, T-shirt, a double platinum number mm-hmm. one hit for Thomas Rhett. That's that's really the flip side of the traditional country coin. I mean, that's a song that name checks mm-hmm. Guns and Roses and features guitar riffs yeah. that you know owe more to '90s pop rock like Tom Cochran's "Life Is a Highway" than you know yeah. Earl Haggard or, or George Jones. Next thing I know, you were in my T-shirt right there. You're here, messed up like a Guns and Roses video. My floor, the way you are, my 
got the diamond rings and old bar stools, which is traditional. You've got a t-shirt, which is super contemporary. You've got hard to forget, which is a, a mix, you know. Um, mm-hmm. what, what do you say to country music purists who kind of lament the increasingly blurred lines between pop music and the traditional country music of the past? I mean, I just think that, you know, it's always going to be changing. Uh, you know, I, I know there, there were people, traditionalists who hated what, what Merle or what, um, Waylon Jennings was doing, uh, and a lot of that stuff, like Tom Paul Glazer and stuff, the the outlaw stuff, they thought that's too rock and roll for traditional country. And yeah. um, I mean, even going back as far as once they started bringing drums into country music. Uh, so I I just think I don't know. I mean, there's a I feel like as a listener, there's you're always going to have um, if you don't like what's going on right now, you can there's just so so much out there and even new stuff coming out that that has more of a traditional sound that you can go listen to I, it just so happens my tastes i like a little bit of all of it um and i mean there's yeah. definitely new new things that i'm like God, i don't know if that's that's something i can get into but it, you know it's it's music so there's no like right or wrong um mm-hmm. but i do i do have a a respect for for traditional country music and like i've said i do think once stuff gets to sounding too um progressive or there isn't even a blurred line it turns into more of just a pop thing then there then there's a kind of a hunger for more traditional sounding stuff and so it'll always come back around and there there's a reason certain classic songs are are classic uh yeah. So I, yeah, I, I try not to. Also, as a writer in this town, who's who's trying to have a long career, the, I've seen it happen many times. The minute you start, oh, all the new stuff sucks or whatever, you just, it's it's a scary place to be because, you kind of gotta. It doesn't mean you have to like everything, but I do think there's there's so many new talented writers and artists coming to this town and. I think you have to kind of go into it with an open mind and see what what people are into. Sure. Well, uh, there's there's kind of a theme that we're pursuing here, which is just flying through hit after hit, you know, to try to continue to move along. It's it's your fault, Luke, for writing so many amazing songs, but <laughs> we're oh. flying through hits like Luke Bryan's "Fast," Carly Pierce's "Hide This Wine," Jake Owens' "Down to the Honky Tonk." I mean, in the interest of time, we're just moving on. Because I want to ask you about another dimension of your career, which is Creative Nation. It's the music sure. company that you and your wife Beth launched in 2011, and it's home to some incredibly talented artists and songwriters like Barry Dean and Laurie McKenna, who's also been on our show. Um, talk about why you branched out beyond songwriting and production to get into the business side of music. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of people, other writers were asking me, what's it like having your own company in that? But just to be completely honest, if it wasn't for Beth, I would have not, I I would not have started this. I've seen a lot of writers, you know, get success and think, okay, now I'm going to start signing songwriters, but they don't ever have that smart business person in place to kind of steer the ship. And, um, and, and so it just never really works. And with me, uh, you know, Beth and I obviously are married, but 
we just work so well together and she's such a uh, smart business person but also has great ears and is great with 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 new writers and and things like that so you know back in 2011 I'd been in my deal for you know really coming it was close to 10 years and I think I I was at a place um, where fortunately I I was it was going to be the first time I was going to sell a catalog and she had been at BMI for five years at that point and I th- and she was just ready for a change as well and at the time we didn't have any kids and and we kind of talked about it and said look I think we could start something and, and kind of do it the way we want to do and work with the writers that we're really passionate about and so we sold my catalog did like a five-year business plan took the money to 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 start the company and it it just you know fortunately it's worked out but it's it's been a lot of fun because you're kind of free from I, I you know smaller companies uh can can operate differently than if you're at a major uh publisher yeah. and right. I'd been in those systems and, and it was fine but I was ready to just kind of do something different and We've been fortunate enough that we've had some really great songwriters that have really kind of, I think, taken a risk to work with us. Um, And every writer here, I always say I want to sign people that I wished I wrote the songs that they wrote. And so that's Mm kind of my barometer. And and, and Beth, you know, we have to obviously agree on, on the writers that we sign, but it we haven't really battled on, on any of them because we fortunately like like a lot of the same songwriters so it's been cool it's been you know i'm not saying it hasn't been stressful at times because you do feel the the weight of responsibility of having employees and employees with families and and songwriters and you want everybody to have success and uh so it, it but it's been cool because i'm proud of the the writers that we do have and I, and i feel like everybody here is unique in the way that they write songs and the kind of songs they write. And so I, uh, yeah, we're, we're not trying to become the biggest company in the world, but really it's just trying to continue to do things that, uh, the way that we like to do them. Your new album is very personal. Uh, we learn a lot about you in the lyrics of your songs. Uh, we learn that your best friend died young in the song Good mm-hmm. Friends and in other places in the album where you mention him. Um, we learned that you had some alcohol-induced incidents in uh, That's mm-hmm. Why I Don't Drink Anymore. Um, it's it's an album where we get to know Luke Laird, the man, you know, the husband, mm-hmm. the father, the friend, the son, um, in a way that we haven't gotten to necessarily explicitly see your life, you know, through songs you've written, you know, that other people have recorded. Um, after all the years, after the success that you've built as a songwriter, why was now the time to come out from behind the curtain and put your own life out there as both a songwriter and an artist? Um, I, it sounds kind of cliche, but the, the songs kind of dictated that I'd, I'd had a few of the more personal songs, like that's why I don't drink anymore. And and then Music Row. And once I had those two songs, it was really Beth that said, I think you should make an album because, and and that was really all the encouragement I needed because I had a blast working on this project because writing these songs by myself, 
um, it kind of took me back to being in high school again. And when you're sitting in your room working on a song, you're not thinking about what's an A&R person going to think about this or could, could this be played on the radio? I didn't have to worry about any of that. And it was really creatively fulfilling because once I knew, oh, I'm writing this for myself, um, I don't have to answer to anyone. <laughs> um, right. it, it really, it really kind of freed me up to, to make them as, as personal um, and not worry about like, oh, could Tim McGraw say this? Well, he's probably not going to say it because it's so personal to me. Like, he, he, you know, he wouldn't necessarily relate. But it was, I, I will say, it it was a lot, a lot of work, but but a lot of fun as well. And even sonically, like working on the production, I I didn't have to think, is this going to fit on country radio? I started recording these, and I even thought you know, if I could have anyone in the world mix this project, who would it be? And I thought, I, w- I wonder if Bill Bottrell would be up for it. And uh, I didn't know him at all, but I always was a fan of what he worked on. And right. I just reached out. Um, I just went to his website, actually, and, like, emailed the info at Bill Bottrell or whatever it was, <laughs> um, told him who I was, and he graciously got back to me right away. And he said, just send me a couple songs. If I like it, I'll do it. And... Fortunately, he was into it. So even like just get, getting that relationship out of this project was such a cool thing for me. And um, it's it's been a lot of fun. And I'll probably do it again in another 10 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, hopefully before that, because it's very cool to hear your own voice and to to hear um, kind of a different slant on your mastery of of the craft as a as a songwriter and you know to to hear that applied to kind of your personal story is is a lot of fun so um thanks thank you for a great uh album and uh also thank you for spending some time with us today to chat about your life and uh and your career this has been fantastic awesome thank you guys so much thanks for listening We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.